You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, business, and philanthropic worlds. Today, our guest is Jeff Cohen. Jeff is a seasoned entrepreneur, having founded and grown multi-million dollar technology and manufacturer businesses. He gained national attention when he appeared on ABC TV's Shark Tank in season one. Jeff presents Count Honorable as the new and rapid success framework that guides CEOs to make this happen. This is the name of his upcoming book, which will be out in the next month. Jeff is a graduate of San Diego State University. He has worked for many multinational companies. He is a philanthropist involved in a number of nonprofits and an overall nice guy. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome to our show. Hey, good morning, Gary. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to go over a little bit about how you got to where you are today and start maybe with your going, growing up and going to Beverly Hills High and then off to college. The thing I think that a lot of people don't realize is how early events in life impact everything. And I think, you know, one of the best places for me to start is really as a child, because there are a couple of really key events that made an impact in my life and I've brought with me for 50 years. You know, we'll talk about my book in a little bit, but the first couple of chapters are those two stories, right? So one of them is, is called Grand Theft Auto. It's about a time I stole a car. And when I got home for dinner, my mom found it in my pocket. It was a little Hot Wheels car. And um, I was five years old, right? But I got, you know, at that moment, a never ending stream of why did you take it? And it seemed to last forever. Now, at five years old, we start making up stories about things at a very early age. So I made it mean that I wasn't lovable. I couldn't be trusted. How, you know, I couldn't be a good friend. There were a lot of things I made it mean. And then during all of that, she then said to me, now, Jeff, go return it. And so I slowly walked up the block. And I got to his house and suddenly it dawned on me, I could return it right to that pile of snow in his driveway and never have to face him. I was coward at the age of five. And I made all of that mean that when someone asks me the word, why? Like, why did you do something? Why is it this way? When is it gonna be, you know, like when I get put on the spot like that, it's a trigger for me. And so, you know, lots of people have triggers, Gary. Whatever you're triggered by can cause so many things, but the number one thing that a trigger causes is for time to be wasted. Because you'll waste 20 minutes hearing why from someone that you really just wanna know, when, you know, are you working on it? Is it something that's gonna get done? And then, Beyond that, what happens is now they've got it racing around in their head for the next few days, wondering, 
Did they screw the conversation up? Did they impact their reputation, their position, whatever that is? Now their pro productivity is, is depleted as well. So, you know, these, these uh, triggers that are formed early on, we carry them forever. And it's really our responsibility to notice them and help others do that as well. I thought the only trigger I had was being on the 405 at rush hour, but there's more than that, I know. <laughs> there, I a, there absolutely is. I had a boss once, uh, I was a senior VP in the bank and my boss called me in his office and said, I wanna have a, a come to Jesus meeting with you. And I went, what the hell is a come to Jesus meeting? I'm a Jewish kid, you know? But you have, you have those moments in business, right? <laughs> Well, but that's a great example, right? I mean, if you just look at it, like being called to the boss's office, right? When it's unexpected, you know, getting an unexpected call from the boss or the owner or whoever the manager is that you're working for. Those are all things that can trigger. But the one thing for sure that they do is they catch you off guard. And when they're not scheduled and you, you're caught off guard, then there are so many things you're unprepared for in that conversation. And right. by the way, that's just, you know, big triggers right there. And, and while the Boy Scouts always said, be prepared, I learned that in my first banking job was always prepare for the meeting, always prepare for the presentation, uh, make sure all your ducks are in a row, you know, and then you can, you can get through it, uh, as they say. So where'd you go to college? I went down to uh, San Diego. Okay. And I was at San Diego State. I was king of the five and a half year graduation speed. <laughs> um, back then, it was really common because, you know, what many people will know is San Diego at that time was considered a party school. And I took full advantage. But it was really great because it, it, it helped me to, I think, mature a lot. I started school actually at 17. So when I was in college, you know, it took a little something for me to come up to speed and um, it was a great experience. I love San Diego. And for my listeners that aren't in California, San Diego State is one of the better undergraduate business schools in the state, as is Long Beach State. Uh, and uh, UCLA never had a bus undergraduate business school and still doesn't. Uh, so I ended up at Long Beach because of that. Uh, awesome. but, I spent a, but I spent a lot of weekends at San Diego State. So. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it was a great school, a lot of fun. I had a couple of amazing management um, professors. One of them was on the board of Royal Dutch Shell at the time. Um, and another was had just an enormous uh, uh, portfolio. But he taught me one thing that was really critical. He taught me how to put my words on a diet. So when I'm writing something, Boy, I'm always looking for like, okay, can we contract that? Can we shorten that? How do we make it um, easier for people to digest? Well, one that's of the, the old, the old keep it simple, stupid, you know. Right, one of the most valuable lessons, right, that you can right. learn is like how to be concise. Well, my daughter went off to college a few years back. I, she asked me for advice and I said, have fun and find your passion. My listeners have heard that before. But more importantly, take a public speaking class and take a, a early accounting class because you're always going to have to have accounting and budgeting and finance in your life no matter what you do you know so absolutely so after college what was your first job well during college in fact from high school forward i worked at um, the, the now defunct security pacific national bank uh -huh. which b of a bought but at the time they were the second largest bank in california and 
I had the most amazing job in college. I was a roving teller. I went from branch to branch to branch and finally landed at the um, branch on the, on the college. And I just had all sorts of fun. But from there, what it did help me with a lot was I learned how to leverage numbers, right? You know, you're always balancing every day and there's a lot of numbers to balance. Suddenly I started remembering numbers like there was no tomorrow. And that's kind of a, a secret win that I had out of that that's, again, lasted my whole life. But a num- you know, people always kind of say, I'm not a numbers guy or I, I don't do well in math and all that. But it is so surprising when you go to a cash register at a store and the, the bill comes to $16.50 or $0.45 and you give them $20.45 and they look at you like, what's the extra $0.45 cents for? Right. No, it's true. It's really great to hear you. Very, very true. I I worked on campus myself going to school, and I I spent a lot of time uh, on a – I was managing students, so that was the best part of my my student life was I was a student manager in the food services, and so a number of student workers were uh, uh, TAs of mine, and so I got good grades in certain classes because they were my – they were my TAs and they gave me great, great grades. But I also worked on the cash register and it gets your mind to think about numbers in a certain way. And, right. Uh, certainly. And I entered a bank training program when I was young. So I did, that was before computers. So we had to do spreadsheets of numbers, take financial statements and spread them in a format and make sure they all added up and they all, you know, uh, what was it, footed? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And yeah, it was great. It was really great experience. It also gave me an entree to my first job after college, which was in management training program for the bank. Mm-hmm. And I worked in the auto finance division and went to car dealers. My first job was counting cars. <laughs> I was the one that balanced their records to their their flooring statements to make sure that all of the cars were accounted for. You know, you don't realize how many cars are on a dealership lot until you do that every day. <laughs> and my training included, uh, you know, accounts receivable auditing, which meant we went out to c- clients who were getting loans from us and we had to check their shipping invoices against their uh, the UPS records to make sure they weren't cheating us. And mm. you know, we get to sit in very, you know, hot factories and we didn't get, you know, we we're in suits and it was, it was miserable, but it was fun all in the same time, you know. Awesome. So how did you get out of banking? What was next after, next for you? I was really interested in computers. And I got a job having gone from banking into selling computers that ran car dealerships. And so I worked for ADP at the time, you know, one of the largest companies in the country today. And they had a division that made systems and the car dealerships. And it gave me a lot of insight into how does a small business run? You know, they had all the different departments. There was accounting, finance, sales, service, parts, and it all had to roll up so that the factories could make sure the dealerships were financially healthy, right? right? So I got a real education in in how to balance a dealership. I also got to work with a lot of um, car dealers um, who are generally very successful people and know it. Uh, (laughs) And they didn't get that way, no way. But I will tell you, I respect a lot of them today. And some of them um, are are no longer in the business. Others, their families have 
continued on, but that's, that's kind of my, my early uh, life, you know, from there, Gary, I moved into like big business and I went to work at IBM where I was calling on fortune 500 and global 2000 companies. And I started working, selling software to their enterprise organizations. And, you know, that was at a time when the internet was really booming. And so, you know, my progression there was, was pretty enormous. The, um, the manager I had back then, I learned a lot of lessons from. And in my book, I actually write a chapter about her. Um, she was an amazing influence, but also helped me to realize when I stepped over the line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there other mentors in your life growing a business career that, that helped you besides her? Absolutely. You know, one of the mentors I had was my manager at the at ADP. Um, he, uh, he was a great seller, but also a great study of people. And what I noticed and what I learned from him was it was really all about the people. And no matter what from above, keeping your direct reports safe. And he did an amazing job of that. Now, obviously, today, you're a CEO of your own company, C-Level Roundtable. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, it's really a culmination of my life experience. So I've started six companies. I grew a software company from nothing to uh, 50 people. And we were just killing it. We were doing business with about 100 Fortune 500 Global 2000 accounts. We'd grown at a very rapid pace. And in 2007, when the market took a nosedive, so did we. We had every single client tell us, Jeff, we love you, but (laughs) we're just not going to extend our agreement right now. And so I had a controlled crash, which enabled me to help everybody get other jobs. And I was the one left. And at the time, I was making these energy bars just for my family. And a friend of mine, his name was also Jeff, came over and he said, hey, can I take some of these to work? And the next day he called me up and said, Hey, Jeff, they want to buy them. I'm like, they want to buy the bars? (laughs) He goes, yeah. So I went over to visit him at work the next day. um, And I found myself energy bars to 20 TV shows and movies on the Warner Brothers lot. And we went from being at farmer's markets to doing that. And then my sister joined us because she was a realtor at the time. And that market had taken a, a real bust. And she got us into Whole Foods, and then she got me on Shark Tank, and one thing kind of blossomed into the next. It was a a really great experience. However, you know, the food business is a tough business, and um, I decided to go back to high tech. I took a look at the the Shark Tank video, and uh, probably probably, probably a very interesting experience for you, huh? It was. It was real. I I recommend anybody watch it. I'm... Our our company was the very first company that they did a follow-up on a success story. And it was also a company that Kevin O'Leary did not like. (laughs) I don't think it was the company he didn't like. I think it was just me. Um, But he's such a likable guy. That's why everyone called Mr. Wonderful. Well, one of the things about being a a banker, and I was a banker in the apparel industry, and that you have a lot of interesting companies that you come across. And so there was a story I tell, which is a, a true story, obviously, that I had a, a guy call me up, an accountant I know, who I still know today, who said, I got a couple of guys from uh, who are French Jews that want to make jeans. Uh, they don't have any, they need $50,000 to get denim. Uh, can you meet them for lunch? And that was the start of Guest Jeans. 
Uh, oh my gosh, which, that's amazing. Which is an amazing, you know, uh, story. Of course, they don't remember me. I remember them, but <laughs> <laughs> they've come a long way. <laughs> Sounds like you're the guy that put them in business. And then, uh, you know, four or five years later, when uh, had a big meeting at the bank with the Marciano brothers of guests and the Jordash brothers, and mm. my boss at the time, who was one of my mentors, said to me, we walked out of the meeting and said, they're going to be in court in six months. And sure enough, they were. <laughs> so, oh, no. Life goes on, as they say. So you are also involved in, I know, the San Fernando Valley Economic Alliance. Uh, how did you get involved in that? You know, that's a great step that I took. I've always cared a lot about people. And the uh, Valley Economic Alliance was led by um, the CEO at the time was Ken Phillips. Ken and I met, had an amazing connection, and I shared with him what I'd been doing. Uh, uh, um, I had developed a program called Next Level 90, which was a business accelerator program. And he actually wanted to put that in so and make it available to the minority women in business that he was committed to supporting. And I aligned with that. I said, yeah, that's that would be perfect. There are a lot of minority women that if they have a structure and support and a way to be held accountable without feeling like they were always wrong or bad, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that could probably elevate them. So he and his team were able to secure funding from the Comerica Bank and also Union Bank for the program. We ran the program, I think three or four times. We had, I think, uh, 25 or 30 individuals go through the program. And I'm still in touch with many of them today. They have successful businesses. Uh, one of the women was a single mom that had been homeless a year earlier. And uh, she took the incubator program at Pepperdine and then joined us. And from the day she joined us to 90 days later, she went from zero to $10,000 a month of recurring revenue. Very good. Well, and I saw I saw on your website uh, the video uh, of, of that workshop uh, with the minority. And I actually saw my brother in that in that video. Yeah, he was one of our uh, mentors that right. um, was involved with the Alliance. And things I, so, things I never knew about my brother until I saw your video. <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't it, what's it, the seven uh, steps, right? <laughs> yeah, six steps of separation, that was it. Oh, right, no, seven degrees, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But here, this is just one degree. <laughs> well, actually, I, yesterday I went to the Dodger game yesterday and with my nephew, Phil, who's now about 40 years of age and having a great time in life. And we're in the about the fifth inning. We stood up to cheer a home run or something. And the people behind us said, wait a minute, is it Phil? Is that you? And it turned out to be people that Phil's mother and father knew from, you know, 25, 30 years ago and their best friends. And we're sitting right in front of them. Uh, what's the odds of that happening? Right. So that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's exactly. amazing. So tell me a little bit about uh, your involvement in philanthropy besides your business connection with the Valley Alliance. Any other philanthropic endeavors that you've been involved in? You know, I support a lot of things. One of the um, biggest things I'm connected to is someone that I really love to pay tribute to. His name, he's my wife's uncle. And he passed away a few weeks ago. You know, one of the things I've learned from people that are philanthropic is it's okay to be humble. And Art Riggs was the epitome of that. Mm -hmm. And what you want to just know about Art is 
he and his team identified the protein needed to create synthetic insulin. Mm. He spawned a $500 billion industry. And in his life, he donated over $300 million just to the city of hope. And you'd never know that from meeting him every year, we would get together for holidays or for my wedding with my wife. <clears throat> and he was just the most mild mannered, gracious, loving man. And I will just tell you, it is, it is nothing short of amazing to know that people like that exist in the world and you'll never know who they are because they're not impacted by their success. Right, right. Well, that's a very, very, very good story. There's a lot of people that I've known in my lifetime that are just quiet, humble, uh, and uh, doing well in life. They don't need they don't need their name on buildings necessarily to know they've done they've done good. It's Have you true. been involved on a nonprofit board yourself yet? No, I've not actually sat on a nonprofit board, and I work with a lot of people that do. So it's um it's a pleasure every time I get to engage with them and help them kind of work through what are the issues that their board is managing or that they're responsible for as part of the board adventure. Well, we will have to talk to you down the road because I'm involved in a couple of nonprofits that need more board members and quality board members. So we will talk definitely on that. So tell me about your book. Uh, I've tried to pronounce the name of your book 10 times and uh, you know, in that kind of, I can't get it out. So tell me about it. <laughs> So it's great. So it's it's a play on the word accountable, right? And the the word accountable has a negative tone for just about anybody you talk to. The last time they've probably heard the word was on the news last night when someone was going to jail or there was a politician they didn't like, just you know, pick one, right? But when it's used at work, what happens is it really triggers people. People don't want to be held accountable. In fact, the dictionary definition of the word accountable is holding someone to be responsible. And the word holding is very constricting. It's not empowering. It actually impacts relationships. So I created a new view of the word accountable, and it only causes you to change the le four letters. And the way it's pronounced is count onable. And so, you know, the concept of count onable is that you're empowering people. They're able to actually stand up and say, you can count on me for this. And let's face it, that's what people want anyway. They want people to know what they can be counted on for. But what you really want to know as a leader is you want to know what you can't count on them for. And what I address in the book is I give you the step-by-step -step guide that empowers people and empowers you so that you are able to put a no penalty zone in place. So people can say, you can count on me for this and for this. And there's no penalty when someone says, look, you can't count on me for that. In fact, that's something you wanna reward. Because no matter what your business is, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit or a team, anything like that, you don't want to put people in the penalty zone. That takes them out. Now they're unproductive. So my book is called Count Onable, 
It's a practical guide to lift, shift, and empower you and your team. And if someone wants to buy the book, where can they find it? Well, it's coming out on June 14th. However, if they go to my website, countonable.com, that's C-O-U-N-T-O-N-A-B-L-E.com, they'll be given an opportunity to get the first chapter like right now if they want. And I have a special offer for anybody listening that's interested because, you know, everything I do, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. So I'm playing this game. And the game is I would like to have a hundred pre-reviews before June 14th. So when the book goes live, we have a hundred people that say I've read it and this is where I see value. Right. Just looking for honest reviews by people they see no value, no problem, but they see that there's something other people can get. I want people to get like, we're creating a new word in the English language. Well, what's interesting about the word and about the concept of you can count on me is that having gone through the pandemic, uh, there are a lot of people that are only counting on themselves. You know, when look at the hoarding of toilet paper or the hoarding of food in the beginning, you know, people were counting on themselves and didn't care about anybody else. And that's, that's a theory that's interesting, especially, you know, with the conservative Christians, when you think about it, and the right wing, that the Bible says, take care of people, take care of the homeless. We just finished our Passover Seders, which says, if you're hungry, come and eat with us. Um, sure. But yet, people don't do that necessarily anymore. How do we, how do we move society in that right direction? That's a big question, obviously. Well, no, it's a great question. You know, listen, the, the concept of empowering people is not new. The issue that shows up all the time is that there's something within us that sometimes rears its head and says, no, I want to be acknowledged. I want to be recognized. I want to be something. I found myself doing that a few weeks ago. My wife and I were foster to adopt parents. Ah, okay. We have a um, almost a one-year-old girl that we've had for four months. And, and about two months in, I said something that my wife looked at me and she said, really, do you want to start that? <laughs> and all and what it was was it was me like playing the game of no, she wants me more than you. But how often do we do that in life? And the problem that causes that is, is that we all, we all want to be special. We want to be heard. We want to be considered like love. We want to be lovable, right? It's the same thing in our companies. And you don't solve a global problem globally. You solve it one person at a time, one team at a time, one organization at a time. And you have the ability as a leader to bring that to yours. And when you bring it in, it starts spreading. It spreads to friends and family. It opens a door. Right. That's how you solve that problem. Well, I'm on the board of Safe Parking LA, which is an organization that has 10 parking lots in the city where if you live in your car, you have a safe place to park at night. And I interviewed the CEO, Sylvia Gutierrez, on my podcast about six months ago or so. But one of our board members is a former client. He hit it a tough time. He lost his housing. 
He ended up as a client in a parking lot of ours. Now he turned his life around one person at a time, as you say, and now he's on the board contributing back to the organization that helped him. So it is a, a good theory about helping one person at a time and watching that grow and build, uh, definitely. Absolutely. I uh, mentor um, business owners for a nonprofit incubator called Green to Gold. And, you know, I see it all the time. It's, you know, they have this great idea that's going to impact the world and they need some support doing it. And oh, by the way, even those people that want to do good, they've still like acknowledging them, noticing the greatness that they're committed to helping them, boy, I'm telling you, nothing goes far, farther than when you're actually able to empower someone and have them be recognized for the great achievement that they have. Right, very true, very true. So when you're not working and not writing books, what do you do for fun? What do you do in the weekends? My wife is the best party planner in the world, the <laughs> best travel planner in the world, the best, like, when, so I love to just, you know, take walks and relax. Like you'll see if you go to my Instagram or, or LinkedIn pages, a number of videos that my team posts of me walking and talking about different things. And I'm walking with, you know, our eight to 12 month old little girl strapped to me. You know, I just love being connected and make, you know, for me, making that difference in her life has been an extraordinary event for the last four months. Yeah, I look forward to doing it for the next child. Very good, very nice. And uh, now that we're getting towards the end of the, uh, the podcast show, uh, what did I forget to ask you? Well, what, what should I, what do you want to talk about that I forgot? <laughs> oh, you know, Gary, there's so much about me. I think your listeners will have fun with. Um, I, I would just want to leave them with this. As a leader, the only way you can have freedom in your life and in your work is when you build people up and help create them to be leaders that in turn create more leaders. Freedom is a function of letting go. Freedom will enable your message to permeate throughout the world. Don't be the most important person in your organization. Very good, very good. Well, that goes back to the old theme of learn how to delegate and give out responsibility and let people do their work and praise them and help them and assist them along the way. So. Well, it's very true. And just in response to that one thing, I, I just want to put a little plug in for the book. Because what you said is really great. What you're saying is, hey, I trust people to do work. I'm going to delegate it to them because I trust them, right? The one thing that's often missing is a, is a process for verifying that it's done. That's not micromanagement and not intrusive, but enables them to be the ones that create trust and alignment in their organization with their people, where more work gets accomplished by the people that love doing it and are great at it, they'll never leave your company. Very good. Well, thank you, Jeff, for being part of our show. We appreciate it. And for my listeners, don't forget to buy the book, Count Honorable, and uh, write a review. Take care. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.